I'm going to, in the first session, give a general overview uh, to Islam and the Quran, and then begin to work through some systematic topics to do with the theology of the Quran. In the last session, I'd like to speak, if I can, if I've got time, about the relationship of Christianity and Judaism to Islam, the, the Abrahamic religions hypothesis, if you like, um, but also about uh, um, the crisis in Islam, which is a topic I'll be speaking on tonight at the church here as well, and, and implications for mission. Okay, let me um, begin by just going over some basics about Islam. Islam is a a religion that's thought to be revealed through Muhammad, who lived from five, about 570 to 632 um, AD. Um, he was active as a prophet, as a revealer of divine truth for the Islamic community over 23 years. And um, he believed he, this was mediated to him by the angel Gabriel, or Jibril, as he's called uh, in, in Islam. There are two main phases or, or chapters in Muhammad's prophetic career. Firstly, the period in Mecca, when his followers were small in number and persecuted and um, rejected. And then in Medina, where he had a more military um, and uh, militant aspect to his work, and he became the head of state, as well as the leader of the army and uh, the general and the chief justice and and the high priest, you know, he combined all powers combined in Muhammad at that time. Um, the Quran was passed on, uh, it was actually revealed to Muhammad uh, according to Islamic tradition over those 23 years in, in bits and pieces. So a verse might come to him in the middle of a, an event or uh, maybe at night, different times. Um, and it was at first memorized by his followers and written down on a variety of, of materials. and. Um, there were various versions of the Quran after Muhammad's death, and it was standardized. Um, well, it was compiled under Abu Bakr, the first caliph, who led the Islamic community after Muhammad in 632 to 34 AD. And then it was standardized about 650 under the caliph Uthman. He, according to Islamic tradition, he, he had all the various manuscripts burnt except one. And that became the, the, the version of the Quran. Um, the Quran is, um, Islam itself is a system of law and obedience to God. It's based on two main sources. One is uh, the Quran, but only about 10% of the Quran is actually concerned with law. Most of it is history, theology, uh, dialogue. Um, and another major source of Islamic law, or so-called Sharia, is the life of Muhammad, what he did and said. The details of Muhammad's life become the best example for Muslims to follow. You know, Muhammad one day said that you should let the beard grow and trim the moustache. And if you look at a photograph of any radical Muslim, they'll have a long untrimmed beard and either no moustache or a very neatly trimmed moustache. You have a look and see. He said it one day and that's it. You know, that's the word of God for what he said, did and said. The Quran is organized into 114 chapters or surahs as they're called basically from the longest to the shortest, not quite, but basically that. The first one is quite short, the opening it's called al-Fatiha, and that's part of the daily prayers of Muslims, but most of the rest is from the longest to the shortest. And that doesn't correspond to the story of Muhammad's life or, the, or to chronological sequence. In fact, the Quran is a very difficult read to, book to read from 
from cover to cover. It's not designed to be used in that way. Um, and there's interesting questions about that. Um, it, Paul's letters are laid out more or less like that in the, um, in the New Testament. They begin with the longest and they get shorter and shorter. <laughs> um, um, traditionally, the Quran is memorised. Uh, it's, it's considered to be a very um, you know, righteous thing to memorise the whole text of the Quran. And um, most Muslims don't know enough Arabic to be able to read the Quran fluently with understanding. Very few would. And in fact, the classical Arabic in which the Quran was written is often obscure and difficult to understand. Um, so it's a, it's a text with many mysteries. <laughs> And I think my PhD, my THD recently was on, um, this, in a sense, dealing with the state of, of the Quran in, in academic studies. Western academia has worked a lot on the Quran. And that whole field is in total kind of, chaos is the wrong word, but in upheaval at the moment. There's so many questions around the Quran that are unresolved or up for grabs right now. Um, there's no narrative order in the Quran, as I said. Um, the Quran also originally is passed on to us in the form of um, just a pure consonantal text, the Razm, as it's called, Razm. Um, this is an unpointed text, and there's 18 letters without any dots on it, which stand for 28 consonants and six vowels. So this 18 letters doing justice for 32 um, different sounds in the language. And that's already a source of, you know, how do you, as they say, how do you point it? What, you know, the points that are, the dots that are added fill out what, what, the, what the signs mean. One letter could stand for several different consonants. So this is um, uh, an, early, um, an early manuscript, or well, it's disappeared now, but uh, it was an early manuscript. Um, a number of people have commented on the difficulty of understanding the Quran. Uh, Arberry's, who did it, Arberry, who was an English... Uh, um, academic did a translation of the Quran. He said, the reader of the Quran is certainly certain to be puzzled and dismayed by the apparently random nature of many of the surahs, the chapters. This famous inconsequence, <laughs> that is not sequential, has often been attributed to clumsy patchwork on the, past of the, on the part of the first editors. I believe it to be rather of the very nature of the book itself. That is, it's the very nature of the book, that it's not laid out in a sequential fashion to be read as a kind of a story. Um, in, and Yusuf Ali, who did a famous translation of the Quran, um, he pointed out that when he translated the Quran, because it's actually quite difficult, he didn't put it this way, but it's quite difficult to know what the text means often. It was probably one of the earliest uh, first texts written in Arabic. Um, he said that his, his approach was to translate what the commentators said the text means. So there's a long Islamic tradition of commentary on the Quran. And normally when people translate the Quran, they translate the meaning as the commentators say it is. So he said, in translating the text, I bear no views of my own, but followed the received commentators. Where they differ among themselves, I've had to choose what appeared to be the most reasonable opinion from all the points of view. Just to give you a little example, um, in the story of Adam and Eve, it's, in one of the stories, it says that um, God gave them feathers to cover themselves. And um, this, is, this is usually translated in, in English translation as an adornment, um, because that's what the commentaries say the word feathers mean. So Yusuf Ali doesn't say feathers, although it's obviously the word feathers. 
and it just says adornment. So that's not actually what it says, but it's what everyone says it, it what was meant by that phrase. So that's just a there's a lot of that in the translation. So that's a that's a bit of a challenge working with translations. I mean that happens a bit with the Bible, but nowhere near the same extent. Um, so that's when people say the Quran is a they say this is an interpretation of the Quran, not a translation. They say it's because it's so holy that you can't translate it. Actually, it's because they're translating the interpretations. They're translating the commentaries, not the text of the Quran itself. There's a very good translation which, which tries to deal with the text by Arthur Drogue. D-R-O-G-E, Arthur Drogue. It's quite recent and uh, I really commend that. Good footnotes too. The Quran has lots of different kinds of texts in it. There are stories. The stories, the Quran says, are there to help people understand. Now, the Quran says we put in this Quran every kind of parable for people to take heed. Some stories are repeated several times, like the story of Adam and Satan, and some are told just once. Some are clearly related to biblical stories, but others are just, uh, it's unclear where they come from. Some of the stories are just alluded to. And you, you, they're not actually told. In fact, a lot of the stories are alluded to and not told. They, they usually have a clear kind of sermon or hom homiletic application, usually a single point which the Quran itself gives. Um, there, are, there are specific commands. This is scattered material throughout the Quran which gives commands for believers. Um, these are important for Islamic jurisprudence, but they're less important for the theology of the Quran. So I'm not going to focus on the laws of the Quran so much in my presentation. I'm more interested in theology. There's a lot of com there's some commentary on contemporary events. The Quran is um, is produced as a text which gives a running commentary on things that are happening in the life of Muhammad um, and also his community. Um, so you might have a comment like, Allah sees what you do, where, 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 where the, the text is speaking to unbelievers, warning them. Um, or there's text that, that regret, it talks about repealing a treaty with non-believers. Or um, uh, warnings. There's a lot of event-specific material, references to traumas in the life of the community. Um, it's, there's, there's quite a bit of theological formula Formulae. There's a lot of formulaic language in the Quran. Uh, there's lots of short sayings of warning and encouragement, worship or prayer that are repeated many times. For example, one such phrase is, surely Allah does not guide people who are disbelievers. Now that's repeated many times in the Quran. And the repetitious nature of the Quran is quite an interesting topic. I'll come back to that in a moment. And there are also fragments of poetry. There's parts of the Quran that are quite poetic and parts that are not so poetic, not so poetic. A lot of the Quran is presented as, as, as one side of a conversation that seems to be going on, a public conversation. Um, a lot of the Quran, if you like, is inside quotation marks. It's very interesting in the story of Noah in the Bible. Um, there's very little conversation apart from God speaking. But in the Quran's version of the story of Noah, Noah has a lot to say. And most of the story is told through conversation. Uh, and there's a lot of discussions between Allah and different kinds of believers and disbelievers. There's conversations reported between the messenger, as he's called, who's the person producing the Quran, and others. Conversations between believers and disbelievers. And there's lots of switches between conversations, even when the jinn speak to each other. There's examples of that. 
In fact, you could describe the Quran as a record of disputes, since almost every chapter of the Quran is set in the context of a debate between Allah and the Messenger on one hand, and the disbelievers who are challenging the message on the other hand. The two main actors in the Quran are God himself, Allah, and someone who's normally called the Messenger, Arasul. Sometimes he's called the Prophet, but actually the normal word in the Quran for this person who's called Muhammad is the Messenger. It's interesting in English we often refer to him as the Prophet, the, the Prophet of Islam, or actually newspapers would just call him the Prophet, as if everyone believed that. But um, he's actually the preferred term in Islam is the Messenger. And in the statement of faith that Muslims make, um, I believe there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his Messenger. That's the term that's used. It's very interesting that Muhammad is only mentioned four times in the Quran. And the places that he's associated with Mecca and Medina are barely mentioned at all. Mecca is mentioned once. Medina, not by name, is mentioned as Yathrib, I think, once. Another name. Actually, most of the place references are further to the north of, in, in Arabia. So there's, a, there's some problems about the geography of the Quran. In fact, some have suggested that the name Muhammad was attached to the text later. Um, that it was uh, the, the text. Some of the earliest manuscripts of the Quran, you know, when they do carbon dating, the, the dating gives a range of ages. And some of the earliest manuscripts, the dating range, a, a good deal of the dating range is before the lifetime of Muhammad. So there's, there's potential evidence that some Qurans actually predate Muhammad. So there's, there's a lot of, so there's, this is why I said the whole, the whole discipline is in confusion. The story we have of the origins of Islam and, and the life of Muhammad, this was basically written down two to three hundred years after Muhammad. It's very late. The Quran is an early text in the history of Islam, but the life of Muhammad, the hadiths, the traditions, these a couple of hundred years later. And um, that's a big problem. And there's a lot of evidence that a lot of that material was written in order to explain the Quran. So you have something in the Quran that obviously begs explanation, a historical context that's alluded to, and then the later Islamic traditions explain that. And quite a number of authors have made that, you know, researchers have come to that conclusion. Sorry, Mark, you yeah. invited this interruption. Yes, please. <laughs> Just fire away. I, I assume, <clears throat> sorry, I assume that this type of discussion and more neutral, objective discussion of the Quran, you can't have this type of discussion with Quranic scholars, with, with Muslims. So maybe if I put it as a question, would there be Muslim scholars who would be willing to discuss this in the way that you do, or can they not step out of the space of faith where they can only interpret in terms of their tradition? There would be some, but they're, they're, they probably wouldn't be Salafas, you know, pious, traditional Muslims. Um, and, but, but a lot of this work is actually being driven by Western scholars, not by Muslim scholars. And for that reason, um, disputed and not uh, accepted well by, by the main body of, of Muslims, I would assume? Yeah, it would be disputed. And um, I think the full impact of a lot of recent scholarship on the Quran is yet to hit the Muslim world, actually. I mean, they're just, for example, there's recent excitement over dating of a, 
of a manuscript in Birmingham which could go back to the life of Muhammad and Muslims thought this was really exciting but actually they haven't processed that there are other manuscripts dated so early that they're too early you know and it's actually quite problematic to have manuscript dated before Usman standardized the Quran because he's supposed to have burnt all the Qurans except the one that he copied so you know it's that sort of level I mean the Quran has a lot of comments about itself and, and, and the Qur'an's own self-talk becomes the dominant grid through which Muslims look at the Qur'an. And a lot of Islamic views about the Qur'an are actually theological views driven by what the Qur'an says. So I think Islam, as in general, has problems with epistemology. It has problems with how do we know what we know. And, and using evidence and having an evidence-based approach is difficult for, for Islamic tradition. Question. Yes. So, so this was <coughs> asked about how they decided the canon of the Quran. Because she said it seems that it was very, I mean, the prayer on that and said this is the prayer. Was there a process or was it just like that? Well, theoretically, a Quran has a chain of narrators. So each Quran, they got it from someone, got it from someone, got it from someone. So they would have chosen one that they believed had a a reliable chain of, of narrators that have been passed on through a series of people. Um, and the variant forms, um, they just made a decision. So I'm not, I haven't studied exactly the criteria they used, but they would have chosen one that they considered reliable. Yeah. Well, actually, even despite that, there are many different Qurans in the world today, and that's well accepted by Muslim scholars. But they have a theory about the variations, and they're fairly slight. So you'll read Islamic propaganda that says there's no, not a single variation, but in fact there are 60, 80 different variants, you know, and several of them in print. But they're considered to be, they call them different recitations. So Allah revealed the Quran in multiple recitations is what they'll say. It's a dancing act, you know, to try and explain. Actually, it's clear that a lot of the variations are due to copying errors, normal processes of manuscript production. But the Islamic tradition has not done that. The text critical study of the Quran is where the text critical study of the Bible was six or eight hundred years ago. It's barely, it's barely started. There's a lot of work to be done. So these very ancient manuscripts in libraries in Yemen or whatever, Muslim communities have not tried to apply a scientific method to, to work out the text of the Quran using those materials. That's not something Muslim scholars have been open to do. I'll, I'll keep going. Um, Islam is a religion of orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. So right behavior is more important than right belief. That's a sort of generalization. So a lot of effort goes into determining what you should do. And the basic principle in Islam is you find someone who knows more about what you should do than you do, and you do what they say. You either do what the imam in the mosque says or somebody else. It's, it's a religion of orthopraxy, not an orthodoxy. And in fact, theological reflection is not a core discipline in Islamic teaching. If the word for Islamic theology, Islamic law is sharia, it's a sort of everything encompassing, this is what you have to do to be a Muslim. It's a path on which you walk. It's what sharia actually means. Um, and um, if, you were, if you were going to say, look at a, um, an Islamic um, seminary or equivalent, an Islamic university, it would be mostly called a university of Sharia. The Sharia, the law, is the, is the dominant discipline. And there isn't actually a, a major sub subtopic within 
uh, an Islamic seminary called theology or light theology. The, the, the speculative or thoughtful investigation of, of why we believe what we believe is not considered to be a prestigious part of Islamic sciences. So the study of theology itself is not that well developed in Islam. The question that Muslim scholars ask is, what should I do? Should I wear my watch on my left hand or my right hand? You know, um, these are these. It's these practical questions that are important, not um, philosophical inquiry or even explaining why we believe what we believe based on the Quran. That's a that's a that's a long story to that. But anyway, the two sources of orthopraxy are the the Quran and the Sunnah, and the Quran, the Sunnah is the example and teaching of Muhammad. The Quran says that you have to follow the example and teaching of the Messenger. So many times it says, whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. So that's the messenger speaking through the Quran. God has told me that if you obey me, you're obeying God. So he says that many times. And the Quran says that many times. The Quran says the messenger doesn't err, that his character is perfect, um, that you go to hell if you don't do what he says, that once the messenger of Allah have decided a matter, the believer doesn't have anything to say about it. So that's why the life of Muhammad is so important in Islam, because the Quran requires it. The early generations of Muslims applied reasoning, kind of with effort, ijtihad, and the consensus of the scholars helped develop answers to important questions. How do you turn the Quran and the example and teaching of Muhammad into a body, a systematic body of knowledge about the way in which you should live? Those early centuries sorted that out. And they developed in Sunni Islam four basic schools of ju jurisprudence, which are followed by Sunnis, and Shia have their own schools of jurisprudence. So a lot of the major questions were worked out in the first centuries. And there's also tafsir, or commentary on the Quran, as another source of religious knowledge. There is a view that the, basically the gates of interpretation were shut in the medieval period, so that all the basic questions were sorted and Islam was sort of fixed. This process of human beings trying to make generalized interpretations based on the Quran and the Sunnah is not considered to be a process of making law, but of discerning law, discerning what Allah's will for us is. This idea that interpretation was shut and that basically jurisprudence was closed uh, in the medieval period is breaking down in the modern times because there's so many modern conditions that Islamic law is not that well suited to deal with and they have to do some major reasoning and rethinking of things in order to find answers to difficult questions like human cloning or you know what does it mean to live as a minority a muslim minority and in, in a western society this is a question that was never really contemplated by the medieval muslim scholars another thing that's important to understand is that um quite a bit of the quran is linked to incidents in the life of muhammad so there's a, something called azbab al-nuzul which is the, the context of revelation. So you have a, a verse in the Quran, and then you have a, a narrative or a tradition about what Muhammad was doing or saying at that particular time when the verse was revealed. So the context for interpreting the Quran is the life of Muhammad, as passed on through traditions about Muhammad. Um, and that means that a, a commentary on the Quran is constantly looking into the life of Muhammad to find the context for the Quran. You know, verse 22, its context might not be verse 21 or verse 23. It might be the thing that was happening in Muhammad's life on that day, which might be completely unrelated to the preceding and the following verses. The verses were compiled later 
uh, into, into chapters. So the life of Muhammad is the context for uh, interpreting the Quran in traditional Islamic jurisprudence. Yes. Two to three hundred years later. So that's the problem that the whole interpretive apparatus for understanding the Quran was in, was was put together centuries after the after the Quran. Um, and scholars have been very skeptical. Western scholars have been quite skeptical. So Goldzier, writing in the nineteenth century said, if you're really deeply familiar with all these traditions about Muhammad, it incites sceptical caution rather than optimistic trust that these were actual you know, records of what was happening in Muhammad's life. He said, these traditions can't serve as primary source documents for the history of Islam in its, you know, in, at the time of the Quran. And Shacht, who was writing on Islamic jurisprudence in the 60s, said the traditions of the Prophet and the Companions don't contain more or less authentic information on the earliest period of Islam as much as reflect opinions that were held two or three centuries later. Another topic that's important to understand is abrogation or nusk. Um, this is a tool for dealing with conflicts between different verses. Um, and the idea is basically that the later verse abrogates the earlier verse if it's in conflict with it. So later meaning later in the life of Muhammad. So let me give you an example. Uh, Surah 4 says, um, speaks about inheritance and also Surah 2 as well. How do you pass on inheritance to your heirs? Because Surah 4 was written later, that abrogates the, the rules in Surah 2. So it's Surah 4 that determines Islamic law about inheritance. Um, a lot of mention is made of abrogation in relation to violence. There are verses in the Quran that speak of peace, and they generally date from Mecca. And the Medina verses, which are later, are more violent, and they are considered to abrogate the peaceful verses. Uh, so the verse of the sword that says, kill the idolaters, abrogates the verses that counsel tolerance. That's quite a complex subject. I'm happy to talk more about it, how abrogation works, but I want to keep moving. But the Quran itself reveals, speaks about this idea. When, uh, when Allah says, when we, when, that's Allah, when Allah exchanges one verse for another, and Allah knows what he's doing, sending it down, they say, you're a forger, you know, you're making this up. But no, they, people don't know anything. So Allah can cancel one verse and replace it with another. You, you, you have to understand, if I can step back a bit, the fundamental idea of the relationship between God and humanity is of a master and slaves. And if you're working for a boss, you do the last thing they told you to do. You know, if they tell you dig the garden on Monday and they say clean the kitchen on Tuesday, on Wednesday you keep cleaning the kitchen until otherwise instructed. And the principal abrogation works a bit like that. The last thing that Allah said is the thing that you go on. Um, and Allah, because he's a master and you do what he's the most recent thing he said. Okay. Um, one of the problems is the, oh, then I'll, I'll set that aside, close that chapter, open up another box. <laughs> um, I'm a man, I can only have one box open at one time. <laughs> um, there is a huge riddle in the Quran, which I'll try and come to later, and that is, what is so much Christian and Jewish material doing in the Quran? There's a lot of Christian and Jewish material in the Quran. And that's one of the big questions of Islamic scholarship, of Quranic scholarship. Why is it there? What does that mean? Where did it come from? Um, 
Firestone, Reuben Firestone says, a great deal of earlier scholarship tried to prove the biblical origin of much of the Quran, but was then perplexed by the nature and consistency of the sometimes strange divergences from biblical texts. So I'll come back on, and comment on that. There's quite a lot of riddles, actually. Um, let me give you some examples of influences. Some doctrines of the Quran seem to owe more to Christianity than Judaism. So, for example, there's an emphasis on Satan, al-Shaitan, in the Quran. Um, there's also beliefs about intercession in the afterlife, the prayers of the saints, if you like. Um, also, the Quran's eschatological vision of the future and Judgment Day and the use of the fear of judgment to motivate good works. The strong anti-Jewish themes of the Quran. All these reflect Christian influences. On the other hand, the, the, the Quran rejects or is hostile to core Christian doctrines such as the Incarnation and the Crucifixion. It knows almost nothing of the New Testament beyond the Luke birth narrative. So most of the biblical references in the Quran are to the Old Testament. Um, so there's a riddle. There's, there's the influence of Christian theology, but the textual interest is mostly in the Old Testament. Another um, in, in, in riddle is the combination of very numerous and diverse... Uh, um, the, 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 the diversity of the material and the lack of awareness of where the material has come from. Let me give you an example. The Quran speaks of Maryam or Miriam as being the sister of Moses and Aaron and the daughter of Imran, but also the mother of Jesus. Because Mary or Miriam, the mother of Jesus, had the same name as Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. And the Bible seems to speak of them as the same thing. Sorry, the Quran seems to speak of them the same thing. So Jesus is the nephew of Moses, part of the family of Imran. In fact, this is such a problem that there's a tradition from a few hundred years later that tries to explain it away. So how would you be able to quote so much material from the Bible but not know that Jesus was not the nephew of Moses? The, <laughs> the Quran speaks of Haman as a senior official in Pharaoh in, in, in Pharaoh's court, mentioning him six times as an evil figure. But the biblical Haman was a vizier uh, under Xerxes in, in the book of Esther. In the Quran story of the golden calf, someone referred to as Al-Samari, the Samaritan, leads the Israelites into error and causes the, the calf to be, to be made. Samaritans didn't exist at that time. They were, that's a term for the Northern Kingdom. In fact, the city of Samaria didn't exist at that time. Um, it was only founded in the time of Omri, the, the, the Samaria was founded. In many other times, ways, the biblical timeline is flattened. So the Quran seems to show no awareness of stages in the history of Israel. For example, in, in Surah 5, Moses addresses the people before they entered the Holy Land and asks them to remember that, king, that Allah has already appointed prophets and kings among them, but the kings didn't come until later. So there's no awareness of that. Um, so that's a really it's just kind of interesting questions. Um, the Quran is very aware of that relatedness, but, but it doesn't kind of, and it plays upon it, but it doesn't seem to understand where it's come from. Another interesting question is um, whether the contribution came more from Christianity or from Judaism, and I'll come back to that uh, in a minute. Um, 
The mainstream Islamic perspective is that the, the Bible is corrupted and it has corrupted contents driven derived from earlier Islamic books which were once delivered by messengers of Allah to the peoples of the book. So under the Islamic view, Moses was a Muslim prophet, Jesus was a Muslim prophet, John the Baptist, all these figures were Muslim prophets. And if they bought a book, these were Islamic books and um, that what we have in our hands, the Jews and Christians, is corrupted. So if there's a, any conflict between the Quran and the Bible, it's because the Bible is corrupted. Sorry, did they have evidence of that or is it just this is what you think happened? It's revealed by the Quran that that's true. This is not an evidence-based view of history. It's a revelatory view. Okay, That's the problem with Islamic problem with epistemology. How do we know what we know? We know because the Quran says that. Um, there's a lot of effort made by Muslim apologists to prove the Quran from science, to say that there's miracles in the Quran, miracles of science. I think that reflects the fact that the Quran says that um, there are miracles in the Quran. So they look for them, you know. Um, there's also disputes going on at the time of the Quran about the authenticity of this material, which is discussed a lot in the Quran. So here's, a, here's from chapter 20, Surah 25. Those who disbelieve say this is nothing but a lie. He has forged it and other people helped him forge it. So they're accusing Muhammad of making it up. They've come to evil and falsehood and they say old tales. He's written it down and it's dictated to him morning and evening. So there's this debate already happening at the time of the Quran about whether it was a genuine text. And so a well-informed Muslim understands that non-Muslims will say this about the Quran. They'll say it's a fake. Because the Quran already answers that question. It's already dealt with it. Um, here's an interesting question scholars, Western scholars have debated about, and that is, if there was influence from Christianity and Judaism, which there seems to be of some kind, was it more from Christian sources or more from Jewish sources? And um, some have looked and found a lot of Jewish influences, others have found Christian influences, and a particular popular view is that there's a Christian-Jewish sect, a kind of messianic Jewish group that influenced the Quran, and a lot of scholars have written about that as well. So they might say, you know, the animosity towards Trinitarian doctrines reflected a, but yet a very high view of Jesus reflected the influence of a sort of more Jewish Christian group. Um, and um, there's a lot of conflicting explanations for the patterns of that influence. Do you think Muhammad was the scribe of all of the Quran? They hold that this was revealed to him by an angel and he recited it and it was memorized and written down, mostly people say by other people. In fact, there's a view that he was illiterate, unlettered. So the Islamic tradition doesn't say he wrote it down, but it was memorized and gradually written down later. So there's the space for the influence of Judaism in that model. Well, the Islamic view is that the influences are there because they're not influences at all, because the same God revealed the Quran to Muhammad as revealed the original text of Jews and Christians. We've now corrupted them, so where there's incompatibility, that's our mistake. So it's the same author, that's why there's similarities. Not an influence. Yeah. So just now, so all of these stories, it's a tradition that the angel revealed like the story of Adam and but then it says it to him and then he wrote it down or
Yeah, he revealed to him and he recited it. The word Quran means recitation. So he recited it. So all of these contradictions, they believe, all, all of these, all the texts of the Quran, they believe was revealed to Muhammad. And then people wrote it over and told me. They memorized it and they wrote it. In fact, they were worried at one point because the people that had memorized the text were being killed in battle and it might die out. And that's one story is that that's when they actually wrote it all down. So the, the word Quran means a recitation. And actually, the text of the Quran has many properties of an oral performance. It's highly repetitive. It uses lots of formula that are like 60% of the Quran is, is, is formulaic and repetitive. These are characteristics of someone who's performing a text, not by reciting a fixed text, but by generating it on the fly as they're performing, like poets might do in some oral cultures. And it, it has characteristics, someone did a great PhD on this, it had characteristics of an oral text. So what you need to think of is someone called the messenger, who's in some kind of context with his community, spouting this stuff out, and is, and is doing this oral text. But someone was the head, someone was leading a cult or a religious group in, which was Arabic speaking and which had certain beliefs about the future of the world and the fear of judgment to come and calling people to repent. And they were constructing this religious sect based on these oral performances, some of which were written down and become embedded into the Quranic text. And they get attached to someone called Muhammad who may or may not have been the the messenger of the text, and then a history of his life gets attached, gets elaborated for that two or three hundred years later. That's the basic, as I understand, the basic structure of the events. I actually don't want to get into, there's a lot of problems with the Quran, and there's about eight major problems, and I could talk about that, but I'm not so much interested in that apologetic kind of deconstruction of the Quran's history as explaining what the Quran actually does say. So, so I'll be doing more of that today. Certainly there was a figure called the messenger, known as the messenger, who was leading a community in which there were regular public recitations in a, in a context of dispute and debate with other religious groups. It's, that, that's clear from the, from the nature of the text and just the way it's structured. You can only produce this kind of text in an oral performance in context. No one writes the way the Quran is written. Even, even to develop the vocabulary and the formula for that kind of writing takes years of practice. This is a performance genre. So that's, that's an interesting thing about the Quran. It's a kind of bombshell, really. So um, it's been really interesting the way the West has processed this question of the, the originality of the Quran, how it's dealt with, did it steal, did it borrow? Um, and it's been, there's a huge, very long apologetic history of criticizing the Quran for being, you know, for taking stuff elsewhere. In fact, the debate's already happening in the Quran itself uh, about this. And there's been a lot, of, a lot of work. I mean, some scholars have said Muhammad knew Judaism and Christianity. One scholar said he knew Judaism and Christianity so well, which was only possible in Mecca at the time. There's hardly a religious concept in the Quran which is not taken from Judaism and Christianity, he said. I actually completely disagree with him, but that's you know this is a this is a kind of issue in, in the discussion about the Quran. I think there's a lot of stuff in the Quran that's quite unique to the Quran, um, and there's been a lot of uh, 
work in recent times trying to situate the Quran in the context of what's what they call late antiquity in terms of the ideas and worldview of the period in which it was produced to locate it in the context of what was happening amongst Arabs at the time and what was happening in a broader sense. Um, and uh, instead of just seeing the Quran as a kind of scrapbook of earlier religious ideas to try and see it as a living document located in the cultural context of its time. Do the Islamic Imams, the religious leaders of, of Islam, do they debate amongst themselves um, the Quran? You know, like Christians and theologians debate various aspects of, of theology. Do they do the same? There is a, um, of course, they disagree on rulings of Islamic law. They disagree on the application of law. But they don't generally debate as much fundamental questions about the authority of the text. So it's not encouraged. Asking questions is not a great idea. There's this interesting passage in the life of Muhammad where he's meeting with some Jewish leaders in, in um, Medina. And he, he called them derogatorily, the men who ask questions. That was bad. So, so how would you then engage with, because it seems as though you're completely convinced that the Quran is true, that England is true. How then do you debate with people who are not entertaining any kind of questions? You know, that's, that's really difficult. And um, you can challenge them. I mean, one friend of mine, an Iranian, who's now a leader in the Iranian church worldwide, he was at school uh, in Portugal, actually, and he made a comment about the Quran, and his teacher said, how do you know that it's true? And he'd never, ever thought about it before, and that question actually exploded his world. So he was ready to contemplate that question, but not every Muslim is. And, I mean, I'll come back to this later, hopefully, but... Basically, Islam is failing politically. You know, look at the Middle East. What has it delivered? And lots of Muslims are now willing to doubt that it's true. Not because of they've looked at evidence in terms of the text and the history of the text, but because of the fruit. And so they're much more open to those questions now than they were before, because it's just not working for them. You know, if, if the Islamic State is telling you this is true Islam, and you don't think that's right, your conscience is telling you that's wrong, it can't be God, then you're very open to the possibility that, you know, about questioning the text and everything, but if you don't have that. But it can be very hard to debate with Muslims because they're just, it's like a circular argument, you know, all bases are covered. Of course your text would say that because it's corrupted, you know. <laughs> you know, you, you, or, or the, you know, the Quran also says that Christians and Jews are liars, so it's very hard to debate with someone if they if they're already kind of prepared to believe that you're going to be deceptive or hostile to them or whatever. So, um, but I have friends who do that a lot. But uh, um, there's been a lot of work in recent decades rethinking the traditional scenario in which um, the Western scholars rethinking the traditional scenario in which Muhammad is the hero of the Quran, and it's a text generated by according to his life. And there's in the last 40 or 50 years, there's been lots of, of work that's been done on that. <laughs> so that's my general introduction, which has taken a bit longer than I thought. And I'd like to speak about God and the human problem, which is my next section.